Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Creation of Israel, Part 3, recorded in September 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Israel has to be somewhere visible. So he moves them from one mountain, Mount Sinai, to another mountain, Mount Zion, which is the tallest mountain in the world, according to the Bible. Have you ever been there? It looks kind of, kind of like a hill. But it's the tallest mountain in the world. Every nation can see it. So that's why he has to move them there. But anyway, they're on their way to the promised land. And um, a king, this is the last king in, the, in the, the long series of kings that oppose God, king whose name is Balak, he says, um, I don't want Israel coming in here. They might try to attack me. I'm going to thwart um, them from realizing their goal of passing through my land. So he hires a professional cursor to curse them. And this cursor's name is Balaam, who happens to come from the general vicinity of the Garden of Eden, kind of interesting throwback to Genesis. Anyway, um, this guy Balaam, uh, he says, come now, curse this people for me since they're stronger than I. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is cursed. Gosh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like God speaking in Genesis 12. So here we have uh, a dramatic moment where someone who has the power to bless and curse, the power to control History. This guy has the power of the God complex writ large. The question is, will he give into it or not when he sees Israel? When he sees Israel, will he see what God wants him to see or will he see what this king is hiring him to see? A a threat to be destroyed. We move on. Balaam's donkey. So Balaam follows um, Balak's uh, men to where Israel is on a donkey. And on the way, and apparently God's upset at this, on the way, God sends an angel with a flaming sword to obstruct his way, to stand in the middle of the road, basically, to prevent him from cursing Israel. But he doesn't allow Balaam to see this angel. Now, here's a quiz. Uh, If you remember the Garden of Eden story, Do you remember seeing an angel of some kind with a flaming sword there? That's how God kept human beings out of the garden. He put a cherubim there, which is a kind of angel, with a spinning, flaming lightsaber, basically. And that's how he kept the humans out. Well, here, folks, is another angel with a flaming sword, blocking the way of a man who's going to come and curse Israel. God allows the donkey to see this. And so the donkey, wishing to save his master, turns this way and that. Three times, uh, Balaam beats the donkey on the head, and she says, why are you doing this to me? God gives the donkey the ability to speak. This is the only other talking animal in the Bible. And what does the donkey say? Um, She says, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam says, apparently not surprised that she's talking, Because you have made a fool out of me. I wish I had my sword in my hand. I would kill you right now. But the donkey says, am I not your donkey? 
which, uh, which, you have no, which you have ridden all your life to this day. Have I ever been in the habit of treating you this way? And he said, no. Here's maybe a, a kind of like an ecological image, you know, of human beings beating up on animals and animals talking back. Anyway, at that point, God opens Balaam's eyes. What happened in the garden to the first human beings with their eyes? They opened. Their eyes were opened. They saw they were naked, and things went bad. Here, the opening of the eyes serves a positive purpose, just like the talking animal serves a positive purpose rather than the negative purpose of the snake. So, the eyes are open. He sees the angel. The angel says, if it hadn't been for the donkey, you would have been toast. So, you can still go. Just do what, what I tell you. Do what God tells you. Don't do what the evil king tells you. So, he goes along. And uh, eventually, the basic story is that three times Balak tries to get him to curse Israel, and three times he listens to Yahweh instead. So, here are some excerpts from his blessings. He blesses Israel three times, just as God cursed humanity, or the human ensemble, three times in Genesis uh, in the Garden of Eden, so now we have three blessings to counterbalance those. The first one, he says, I'll just pick out some sayings here, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? So Israel is not like Adam and Eve. How can I denounce those whom Adonai has not denounced? Here is a people, he says, living alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Again, God has separated them in order to remove them from the context, the systemic context of structural sin and violence, to create them anew. Who can count the dust of Jacob, the number of the dust cloud of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, the righteous, and let my end be like his. Now, who was Abraham? Abraham was the one who trusted in God and was declared righteous. Here is a non-Israelite, a Gentile, if you will, seeing the people that God has created, and understanding its significance to all humanity. May my fate be like theirs. May my end be like theirs. May I be like the just, which is them. So he's seeing, and he's not seeing a threat. He's seeing an opportunity. Let's continue. Second blessing. Uh, See, he says, I received a command to bless from God. He is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. So this is an irrevocable decision that God has made in creating Israel. He cannot go back on it, as Moses pointed out to him earlier in the story. Um, Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, see what God has done. See the people God has created, in essence. Final blessing. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch far away, like gardens beside a river. Where did human history begin? in a garden beside a river. Like aloe trees that that Adonai has planted, what did God plant at the beginning of history? A garden. Uh, Like cedar trees beside the waters. He's evoking the language of the Garden of Eden. After all, he's from that part of the world. And he's applying that language to Israel. Somehow Israel represents what was lost, right? And then plenty of other nice things he says about them. Blessed is everyone who blesses you. Cursed is everyone who curses you. Again, the human being now speaking from God's perspective. And this is really what it means when God says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Uh, what, what it means to bless Israel is exactly what Balaam is doing, to recognize the significance of Israel, to recognize what God has done through Israel. Uh, the first instance of this in the Bible is in chapter 14 of Genesis, way back then when Abraham's still running around before he has a son. 
Abraham uh, uh, gets acts as a mercenary in a war, and he brings the spoils back to his allies, and his allies um, thank him for this, and they express their gratitude in different ways. One of the kings, whose name is Melchizedek, uh, thanks him by blessing him. Blessed be you, and also blessed be uh, God Almighty, who gave you this victory. So here's an example of a non-Israelite king who is blessing Abraham, and in doing so is recognizing that God is the reason why Abraham succeeds, why he, why he exists as he does. So the blessing of Israel is simply recognizing what God has done through them, rather than this king seeing them merely as a threat to be extinguished. Um, so you can see then how this is a reversal, again talking about, this is a reversal of the Garden of Eden story, a reversal of the fall. Now, it's not a complete, literal reversal of the fall because people still are mortal. People still have to work the land, uh, which is hard labor. Women still have painful childbirth, etc. So the curses are still there, but they've been ameliorated in, in Israel's case. They've somehow been lessened, uh, and perhaps there's more to come, again, since Israel is now be, being made holy by God, being brought into sharing God's own nature of holiness. Okay, so that is the story of Israel's creation. I'm going to end on a quick little uh, prophetic text which encapsulates the dynamic I've been pointing to very nicely. This is from the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to have to reverse the logic of what Jeremiah is saying in order to get to get the full idea here. Uh, this is what God says according to Jeremiah. God who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. So again, reference to creation who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Uh, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order of creation were ever to cease from my presence, says the Lord, then also the offspring of Israel would cease to be a nation before me forever. So when creation, when the cosmic creation collapses and ceases to function, then Israel will cease to exist. We'll interpret that in a moment. This corresponding statement, Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will reject all the offspring of Israel because of all understood the sins they have done, says the Lord. Now, if you remember that the heavens aren't the skies, they're not outer space, heaven is a metaphor for God's presence. So can God's presence be measured? Of course not. Well, this is the point of these, of these statements. If creation were to fail, then Israel would die. But since creation will never fail, right, because God swore an oath that he would never destroy it, back in Genesis 9, since it won't, Israel will never be destroyed. Uh, if Israel, sh or if, if creation should ever falter, if the, if the order of things should ever end, then I would punish Israel for its sins, but it won't, so I won't. So this sort of reading into this, you can sort of grasp again the relationship between cosmic creation and national creation. The two go together. The two are equal manifestations of God's nature and of God's will to create a world in which human beings can live in harmony with one another, with nature, and with him. Um, Israel, you know, Vladimir Putin made this big thing in the New York Times about how he's upset that Obama talks about Americans as being exceptional. Well, of course, Israel is presented as being exceptional. That's where the discourse of exceptionalism comes from. It comes from the election of Israel in the Bible. We have to remember that the election of Israel is not an end in itself. The election of Israel, the specialness of Israel, is there for a, for a larger goal. Um, and it's not to say that Israel's 
survival is more important than anyone else's survival, but rather it's saying in order for for creation to be whole, creation and human history cannot be whole without Israel's survival. It's, it's, It's as an essential component to the world order as the sun is. That's the language of Jeremiah here. So I think I'll end there. We we got some time to talk now. So what shall we what shall we talk about? Yes, sir. Okay. So so this is a question about sort of the history of the composition of what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. Scholars have differing ideas about when the Torah became the Torah, when the Pentateuch came into the form we have it. The only incontrovertible empirical evidence we have that the Pentateuch, of when the Pentateuch existed in its form that we have it, is in the third century BC. Because in that century, it was translated in its current form into Greek, and we have that translation. That's called the Septuagint. So by the third century BC, it was already an accepted, uh, solidified text. How much farther back do we go, though? Some people would go all the way back to the 6th century or the 5th century B.C. with Ezra and Nehemiah, because we hear about Ezra, the the scribe, having the the scroll of the Torah in his hand. But, of course, uh, it's only one scroll, not five. (laughs) Um, It's possible that it goes all the way back to the Persian period of the 5th century B.C., um, but certainly not earlier than that. And so there's basically a black box between the 5th and the 3rd century where something happens. The more interesting question is not when, but how it came together in its current form. Uh, because if you read, if you isolate the separate sources or strands, as they're called, and read them by themselves, it's pretty clear that whoever authored these individual parts would not have stood for being combined with the others the way it is, especially the book of Deuteronomy, which which essentially systematically attempts to rewrite the laws of Mount Sinai, completely rewrites them while claiming not to do so. Uh, it would pr- the author of Deuteronomy was probably turning in his grave to know that he is now part five of, of the Pentateuch. He, it was conceived as a separate work. Um, or the priestly creation, the priestly writer, from where we get the priestly creation story, the Yahwist writer, um, they have very different visions of things. Uh, so it's unlikely that any one of these groups sort of decided, well, let's all combine them, because that would dilute my own particular set of interests. Rather, what you seem to have here, what I imagine is, is happening here, is you have some kind of situation, either in the land of Israel itself, or perhaps even in, in the diaspora outside of the land of Israel, where communities, or perhaps one community, is forming uh, that realizes that you need all parts of your tradition that have survived, and you somehow have to bring a synthesis of them together so that they... Someone still had to do the cut and paste. Yeah, someone had to do the cut and paste. We call that the redactor or the editor. And one rabbi said we should call him rabbi because he is our teacher, because he is the one or they are the ones or whoever is responsible. They're the ones um, who ultimately shapes how we read the final text. You know, who balanced one creation story over the other by setting them side by side rather than choosing one over the other, who um, included, who includes all these variant versions of things all together without throwing anything away. Whoever did this had a very broad mindset, uh, had a, again a synthes- synthetic uh, impetus to, to bring everything together without 
erasing the individual voices that, that make it up. Uh, whoever it was must have been very inspired, I would say. Right? Very inspired. But we don't, we, we, all we know is the result of the process. We can't really, we can speculate, but we can't really know the, how the process happened. Sir, yes? Okay, so the question is, uh, could there be parallels between the story of Balaam, whose eyes are opened, uh, and in the New Testament, the story of Paul, who is blinded by the light, and eventually he is allowed to see, uh, and he becomes the advocate of the movement he was persecuting? Possibly. Um, I mean, the Bible is sort of set up <laughs> to invite such comparisons. Uh, my guess, if I knew more about Greco-Roman literary conventions, is that this might also be a pagan literary motif as well, and that Luke, as sort of an author who's well-versed in the tradition of Greco-Roman writing, might be drawing upon some of those motifs as well. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't restrict it to that, but certainly, uh, you know, if... if if a community says, um, you know, the, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings uh, are coeval, they, 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 they read together with our growing collection of literature, which we call the New Testament, then, of course, there's going to be opportunities and legitimate opportunities to make those sorts of connections. I, 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 I don't know if I would go so far as to say I can imagine Luke intending that. But, you know, it, 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 it would make a good homily, I think. <laughs> Yes, Rabbi. Yeah. So, so the comment was on, um, you know, how can we can we expand this 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 motif of the self reflection, the the humbling, the getting rid of their own god complex of the patriarchs? Can that be sort of extended back to the creation story and somehow implicated in in humanity created in the image of God, perhaps things like that? Nothing comes to mind instantly, but one thing I would say about the priestly creation story, Genesis 1, is that uh, what is curious about the story, what I find curious is that, again, you know, with these elaborated stories, it tells you what the story is going to be about in the first verse. And we're told that, the, the, that before God started doing anything, the earth was without form and it was empty. So we know that when we have a form, a structured earth, a structured earth with, that's filled with things, we know that the creation story is over. Well, those are the six days of creation. So formally, from a literary formal standpoint, the creation story is over by day six. So that raises the question, what is the purpose of this appendix, which is day seven? Yeah, well, God rests, but you know, God surely is not tired. <laughs> What is the, why, why emphasize this thing about resting on the seventh day and identifying that day as holy? Because in verse one of Genesis, there's nothing about holiness. It's not anticipated in, in the plot of creation, and yet it pops up there at the end. What I find interesting about that is if you look at the, the history, or the, the priestly strand, the priestly source, you'll see that he divides history up into three covenants. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel. And each of those covenants serve a different function with relation to, the, with creation. And I would argue they do very much what you're suggesting here, that they are moments of expanding consciousness. The one with Noah, the, the, the covenant with Noah is basically a prohibitive covenant, right? It's this almost a negotiation. If you don't want me to destroy the world or wipe you guys out again, 
you can't um, you know, c- uh, consume blood and you can't kill human beings because of the reasons that were stated at creation. Um, so it, it prohibits, it, it, it sets limits to what human beings should do. So it, it, it draws attention to a moral consciousness. Then you go to Abraham in Genesis 17, that's the priestly author's covenant text, where uh, Abraham is to... Um, is to walk, uh, to walk blamelessly before God. Well, there's only one character in the Bible who was blameless before Abraham, and that was Noah. So presumably, this second covenant presupposes that Abraham is observing the basic moral compass of covenant number one. If he does that, then God says, I will make you very fruitful, which of course is the command God gives to all humanity in chapter one of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. So the second covenant with Abraham, its purpose is to enable Abraham to fulfill that basic human role. And then, in order to bring a nation into existence, who's going to enter into the third covenant? So if the first covenant is prohibitive, the second one is enabling. The third one then, the Sinai covenant, that's when the motif of holiness reappears, right? That, that tag on, that strange tag on on the end of the creation story. Why is holiness significant? Well, because in covenant number three, I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to make a people holy. He made time holy back then. Now he's going to draw a whole people into the, the sphere of his own divine existence. And what will be the sign of that covenant? The sign that they recognize that that has happened and that they have been called literally to a a greater form of being, a greater form of consciousness, awareness, it's resting on the seventh day, imitating God's own creative activity. And let me further tag on that. What does holiness mean? We'll talk a bit more about that maybe next time when we talk about the temple, but holiness uh, is defined in terms of the tabernacle, the tent that God establishes uh, for interacting between himself and Israel. Between uh, so Israel can approach and bask in sort of the divine presence. Um, but if you look at the, the laws of sacrifice, and especially the ways in which sin is supposed to be atoned for and rectified, uh, the tabernacle is a model of the cosmos. When you sin, you murder some part of the world. When you atone for your sin, what gets cleansed is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a representation of the world. When you sin, you murder a part of it. You defile the tabernacle. When you atone for sin, that part of the tabernacle is cleansed. You've rectified. You've, you've, God has enabled you to rectify that, that problem. So this whole obscure, to us, what seems to be obscure and maybe even pointless uh, sequences of sacrifices and do this, do that, it is all training you. It's all training you within the context of the human community how to relate to uh, the ecosystem as a whole. I use a modern term, but by that I mean Genesis 1, right? The order of creation. It, it trains you how to think and be aware of how your actions impact more than just yourself and perhaps your neighbor. That's reading into it a much more modern consciousness, but the dynamic of that is there. The purpose of the covenants is to expand consciousness, to expand our awareness of our role within the world. So thank you for that, that uh, provocation. <laughs> yes, so the question was, uh, it, can this, this principle of purifying the temple, 
Can this be the background against, we against which we understand Jesus' temple action as a kind of purification or cleansing? Yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, I, I, I think that, that maybe we're the... <laughs> well, I think that we're the... I think that we're the um, the deeper um, parallel will be will be not Jesus' cleansing of the temple, but but the application of atonement language to Jesus' own death. Um, especially in John's gospel, where where atonement, you know, where Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, what is the Lamb of God in Old Testament terms? Um, the Lamb could be Isaac, the Lamb could be the Passover Lamb, we, it's certainly that which is not an atonement for sin. It is, in addition to whatever else it is, it is a protection. It's a protection from the chaos going on outside your door. Um, but, the, but the fundamental way in which the, the New Testament authors, and especially John, work with this, um, this uh, pedatucal notion of atonement is that Jesus becomes this agent of rectification for the cosmos, Right, for and there's an objective effect of Jesus's death, and uh, when when John says he's lifted up on the cross, it's as though the, the sin, you right, right, the, the negativity is being exposed for what it is. It, it's a moment of con- of eye opening, of consciousness opening. At least that's the way it's understood in there. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms, obviously. But but yes, there is the, the New Testament authors do profoundly make use of this way of thinking. Um, and apply it uh, to Jesus, especially when Jesus becomes the incarnate word or something like it, then it's creation in spades. You know, everything about Jesus is about creation. So yes and yes, you know, both of those things would be true, I think. Okay, so next time, we're going to take it a step further. The rabbis also said that uh, the temple existed before creation, and so did the, the name of Messiah. If we backtrack a bit, let's say it also included perhaps the Davidic monarchy. Next time we're going to talk about how, in addition to understanding Israel's identity as a nation as an act of creation, we'll see how that same sense of creation is specified in terms of this institution of the temple and the institution of monarchy in Israel. So we'll see you next week. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.